You're listening to Revelation Revealed, and we're going to look at another myth today that we should read Revelation literally. Uh, If you look through the book of Revelation, there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens. We're going to look today at uh, a woman, a prostitute, two beasts, and a dragon. And uh, whenever we encounter these things in the Bible, we don't want to take them as if we're hearing descriptions of actual literal creatures because the Bible is very symbolic. Uh, That's the language of the authors of the Bible. Now, just because something's symbolic doesn't mean it has no truth value. It just means we have to read it in its appropriate genre. So the type of literature that the book of Revelation is, is a specific type. It's called apocalyptic literature. And in apocalyptic literature, God inspires authors with these massive symbolic visions to teach them about what God is like, and how God runs history. So if you want to think about it this way, apocalyptic literature represents symbolically what is happening historically. So they are referring to historical events, but they're trying to pierce those events to see the meaning behind them. So oftentimes when we think about history, we just think it's event after event, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. But apocalyptic literature says, no, there is a reason behind everything. There is a purpose behind everything, and God wants us to grasp the theological reality of the historical events that happen. So we're going to look at Revelation 12, Revelation 13, and Revelation 17, because these are some of the the chapters that are the most symbolic. And what you're going to see is there's going to be a lot of Old Testament imagery that comes to the forefront. So I'm going to obviously not, I'm not going to be able to go super in-depth, but hopefully this will give you an orientation when you come to these chapters for yourself, that you don't feel completely lost. So let's look at Revelation 12. We're going to first look at this image, this vision that John gets of the woman and the dragon. So what we see is the Spirit reveals to John a dragon who chases a pregnant woman who gives birth to a child, and that child is going to rule the nations. And as the dragon goes after the child, the child is preserved. He's caught up to the throne of God. He's preserved from uh, the dragon. And then the dragon, we see another vision where he's cast down from heaven by the archangel Michael. And he's no longer allowed to deceive God's people or to uh, condemn them. He's no longer allowed to uh, uh, bring God's judgment against them. And then he starts to attack the woman again, and she's preserved once more. God preserves her by sending her into the wilderness where she is nourished. So what is this? Well, John helps us out. He tells us the dragon is Satan. Okay, so Satan is a fallen angel, and he's the one who is attacking God's people and attacking uh, God's purposes in the world. Now, the woman is a little trickier, but the woman represents really Eve or Mary or Israel or anyone associated with the Messiah. So the son is clearly Jesus. He's the one who's going to rule the nations. And if you think about it, Jesus came from Eve. Jesus came from Mary. Israel birthed Jesus. And the church is seen as the mother of all Christians. So this mother-type image refers to God's people. And then what happens is when we put all these images together, Satan tries to go after this child, which is what we see in the gospel narratives. Herod tries to kill all the infant children to weed out the Messiah. And then when the child is born, he's preserved from destruction, even though he is crucified, God raises him and ascends him up into heaven. So the son literally comes before the face of God. 
And then the dragon tries to go after the woman, after the church, after the people of God. But God preserves them. And he preserves them for 1260 days. This is symbolic. We're going to get to that later. But if you want to wrap this all up, God preserves his people. This is a symbolic vision of the fact that even though uh, Satan goes after Jesus and his people, God preserves them. And what we see is the death and resurrection of Jesus casts Satan down, right? If you think about it, this isn't talking about Satan's pre-fall, pre-creation fall. I think this is talking about how the death and resurrection of Jesus casts Satan down from the heavenly places so he can no longer condemn the saints. And that's symbolically represented here. Because Satan is allowed in heaven. If you look in Job, Satan is at before the throne of God talking about Job. But the death and resurrection of Christ has numbered Satan's days. So just as a, ref, a, a, a review, the woman of the dragon, that is the church being persecuted by Satan and God preserves the church. Revelation 13, we see two beasts. One comes out of the sea and the other one comes out of the land. Now, again, John is using Old Testament imagery and beasts come from the book of Daniel and they represent political powers and kingdoms that are aligned with evil. So when we think about beasts, we want to think about kingdoms. The first beast pops out of the sea and he has 10 horns and seven heads. Now, later on, we're going to find out that the seven heads refer to seven hills and the seven hills are what you refer to when you speak about the kingdom of Rome or the empire of Rome. The 10 horns represent, uh, it could be 10 generals of Rome or 10 military powers. We're not entirely sure, but the seven hills tip us off that this is about Rome. And what happens is this beast gets authority to attack the church for 42 months. Why is this significant? Well, the Caesar Nero, who was in charge of Rome when Revelation was written, he persecuted Christians for 42 months. And 42 months equals 1260 days. So this is a, a very real area of, of historical events where God is preserving his people from persecution, even though they are suffering. And this beast is blasphemous. He's speaking against God because Caesars consider themselves to be sort of like gods. So this is a political statement. And we see that again when this second beast emerges and, and his job is to point everyone to worship the first beast, to worship Rome. Now, a lot of commentators think that the second beast is the priesthood of Israel because what you see is Israel is allying with Rome to go against Christ. And we see this in the Gospels, that even though the Jews and the Romans didn't like each other, they both didn't like Christ. And so there's this uneasy alliance. And what happens is, the second beast institutes this mark of the beast, which everybody talks about. What is it? It's very hard to interpret what the mark of the beast is, but it seems to be some kind of prohibition for people to buy and sell. So it, it, there's an economic cost for not aligning yourself with the beast. But also, the beast's mark is on your hand, your right hand, and on your forehead. Now, in Jewish literature, and you read this in Proverbs and the Old Testament, the word of God is supposed to be on your forehead, right? It's supposed to be something you see all the time. In fact, a lot of the Pharisees would wear little bits of the word of God on their forehead and on their hands. So it seems like what John is symbolically saying is when you align yourself with Rome and the Jewish priesthood that has been corrupted, you are aligning yourself against the word of God. You're, you're putting on another word of God, the mark of the beast. 
an alternate truth, and you're aligning yourself with that. And finally, it says that what we're talking about here with the beast centers upon a person, 666, another famous symbol. What is 666? Well, there is this uh, art of sort of symbolic numerology that Jews used. Basically, numbers uh, and letters, uh, numbers had certain letters associated with them. And basically, I won't go through the whole thing, but if you take 666 in the Jewish sort of numbering system, it spells out Nero Caesar. Nero Caesar. So apparently, John wants his readers, because he says, if you're wise, you're going to get this. You're going to get this symbol. If you see 666, this is a covert symbol that I'm talking about, the current emperor of Rome, Nero. That is who the beast is centered upon. He is the leader of this beast, and he's allied with the powers of Satan, because Satan is the one who gives the beast all of his power. So we learn that political powers have spiritual powers behind them. We, we, we can't be so anti-spiritual that we, that we forget that there are real dark forces in this world. And every force that is aligned against the kingdom of God is part of the kingdom of Satan. And we see that exemplified in Rome and its leader, the crazy guy, Emperor Nero. Finally, Revelation 17, we see the image of a harlot and a beast. Now, the harlot is seen as riding the beast. She's clothed in all this uh, fancy jewelry, and, and she's got a cup full of sexual immorality and evil. And she's drinking, and she's drunk on the blood of the martyrs, of Christian saints. And she's riding the beast, which is Rome, which we established earlier. And what we see here is this this great whore of Babylon, as she's referred to as, is Jerusalem. And the reason I think this is because in the Old Testament, whenever Jerusalem turns away from God, God calls her a prostitute, a harlot, a whore, right? And you can only be a harlot, an adulterer, if you're already married to someone. And so Israel was meant to be God's people, but she keeps turning away and turning toward other nations and the gods of the other nations. And what's happening is Israel's allying with Rome, but there's going to be an issue here that she's going to be betrayed. And that's what it says, that even though she is allied with Rome, allied with the beast, the beast is going to betray her and leave her naked. And this is what happens whenever you trust anyone else other than God. It's going to betray you. It's going to leave you desolate. And we see that because in 70 AD, Rome went in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. This is the ultimate betrayal. Jerusalem tried to ally themselves with Rome, and it didn't work at all. It started a war between them, and they ended up paying dearly for it. And so we also see that this beast has uh, a series of kings, seven kings, and we see that five of them have passed. The current one, the sixth one, is Nero, and the seventh one is going to only rule for a small period of time, which ends up happening. Uh, the, the emperor after Nero only reigns for a few months, so there's some incredible historical accuracy here. But the whole point of all of these uh, crazy kind of symbols, and I know I've kind of briefly gone through them, but the whole point is whether it's the dragon chasing the woman, or whether it's the two beasts making war against God's people, or whether it's the harlot and the beast, no matter what, God will preserve and protect his people. For those 1260 days he preserves, for those 42 months he preserves, and he's always going to be with his people. And think about this, Rome has fallen. This is not merely symbolic or just some kind of story. We name our dogs Caesar, 
and we name all of our kids after the apostles, John, Paul, James, Andrew, Peter. God really is the Lord of history. And we sometimes need to see beyond what's immediately present to us in the world, even though it seems like everything's going crazy. God is behind the veil. God is the one controlling all things in history. God is the one who crushes the dragon, defeats the beasts, and brings his bride home safely. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Make sure you subscribe and follow us at Four Oaks College on Instagram. And you can watch this on Instagram TV as well.